0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled "Reliable." Oh, no, it isn't called that. It's called Leader Reliability, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. And our author who joins me from Michigan, Jeff Dudley. Welcome, Jeff, to the program. Thanks, Jay. This is a book that a lot of uh, authors attempt to finalize or, or focus on about leadership. How did you come to write your book? What is your background that allows you to comment on this important topic?
2: Well, Jay, I have 35 years of professional experience in the chemical industry, uh, but the, the interesting thing about my life is from a very little boy, I was uh, I was put in leadership positions. I uh, From a sports analogy, I uh, was a catcher on the baseball team. I was a quarterback on the football team and uh, continued uh, to play uh, sports into my uh, college career. So always in leadership positions. And then, uh, ironically enough, when when I started my career, I had uh, uh, my leader, uh, when I first started working, became ill. So I was thrown into a leadership position uh, in the first six months of my professional career. So leadership's always been important to me, and what I have done uh, in my professional career is try to grow other leaders. I think uh, that's what leaders really do, is if they are being leaders, they don't create followers, they create other leaders. So my 35 years in the professional industry, but my lifelong uh, willingness and desire to lead the uh, puts me in a position i think that i can write about this topic
1: i'll pose the question that comes up in chapter two uh, what makes it so hard why is leadership such a difficult thing for people to to get a grasp of
2: well i think what happens is people try to uh to create followers and i think what they do is they begin to manage hmm. and there's an incredible difference between managing and leading uh managing uh the followers listen and uh wait for you to tell them what to do and leaders just enable their uh employees and their colleagues and those who are around them to do their job uh and more are a coach and mentor uh and care more about the success of the the people that are around them than maybe their own
1: and leaders uh, real leaders actually do set examples and sometimes are the hardest working people in the in the uh in the system
2: yeah, they're they're uh I think a great if again a great sports analogy. If you look at uh, most of the captains on uh, hockey hockey teams, they're no doubt the usually the hardest workers and spend the most time on the ice and I think that's the same thing in the in the professional world uh in business is that yeah, uh, maybe behind the scenes, but there's uh, always lots of work going on.
1: Jeff, what's your style of writing? Would you consider it uh, informational only, or is it uh, more conversational in your approach?
2: I try to be more conversational. I try to pose questions, and, and then depending on the question I pose, sometimes I, I create my own answer. But uh, I like to uh, I like to engage uh, the reader and uh, have the reader feel like they're having a dialogue.
1: One thing that's interesting about your title, and and certainly one that I focused in on, was the uh, the aspect of reliability. There's more to leadership than just uh, standing on the sidelines and and giving out uh, instructions. And as you've already mentioned, reliability—how important is that? And why did you use that in your title?
2: Well, reliability—my definition for reliability—and being in the in the chemical industry. Most people's definition for reliability is about assets and how assets work and things like that. But I really believe reliability is a people thing. My definition for reliability is to constantly and consistently meet your commitments. And so that's what people have to do. And when people begin to to do that, uh, they do two things. One, they act like leaders. And two, uh they minimize unplanned events around them. And so can you imagine working in a whole organization where everyone meets their uh, commitments all the time? Uh, haven't worked in one yet that everyone does, but I've worked in, uh, in a few that then helped to create a few where uh, the vast majority do, and it's, it's just a different way of
3: working.
1: I share with my listeners a little of the uh, anecdotal stories that you've included. One is about the Delta Corporation. What was that story about, and how did that relate to your book and your concept?
2: Well I am a uh, a, a client or a uh, customer of Delta Airlines and uh, have have been back to the days when uh, before Delta merged with Northwest and uh, i I unabashedly say that I am a, a huge Richard Anderson fan. Uh, actually had the chance to meet uh, him and had a conversation with him, and his whole conversation was about reliability and how humans are a part of reliability, and that that the equipment is only is typically designed to run; it's just uh, we humans intervene and cause it not to. So, uh, and being a uh, a customer of that airline, I have seen them grow and change, and you know the. The interesting thing is the, the world has twos, because if you go look at their uh, their stock price uh, two years ago and what it is today, uh, it's just a testament of uh, a culture of reliability. In the professional world, you get the chance to have create the culture, but uh, typically it's either reliable, a reliable culture or a cost culture where people were cost-conscious and cost-cutting. The two can't live together. You know, uh, it's the great uh, quote by Abraham Lincoln that a house can't survive divided. And uh, I, just, uh, I just think that uh, that company uh, sort of is, is a role model to other uh, big asset intensive companies on how to create a reliable culture.
1: You've also highlighted the lives of some exceptionally well-known leadership, and you've also commented that they led cultural changes because they disagreed with all or part of the culture they were living in. This applies to business and to personal lives, doesn't it?
2: Oh yeah, when you uh, firsthand, if you go to try to change the culture of uh, of anything. You will meet resistance, and you know the the few that I named were Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln and uh, Mother Teresa and the likes of those folks. And you know when they uh, when they wanted to change the culture, and, and the interesting thing for me is it typically takes one person to do it. And I'll, what I tell the the folks that I teach about this topic is that uh, it only takes one other person. So you have to convince one other person that it's the right path to take, and you can begin to change the culture. But you will meet resistance. Culture change is a a hard job. It takes a long time, but you have to believe without a doubt that that's what you want to do, and and if you do, it it can happen, and I've had the pleasure of working in a few that that really
1: have. One of the items that you also highlight in your book is uh, the ability or the focus of prior prioritizing tasks and processes. Is there an easy way to do that? Or do you have a, a special way to accomplish that in your own personal management style? Yeah,
2: what, what I think, uh, I think, it is getting the input of others uh, one of the one of the things that uh, we often do as leaders is think we have to come up with all the answers and mm-hmm. really, what we have to do is ask the questions uh, my My leadership style is to engage the entire organization and and then uh, to find out uh, from them uh, what the issues are because they know what the issues are oftentimes they 're just never asked or or they're in a in a uh, managing situation where they're waiting for the the person who is their administrative leader to ask them the question and and
1: they just they give answers they they don't give uh, their their opinions jeff who is your leadership role model in your personal life if you have one or maybe corporate that uh, inspires you and also your book when you began to write it who did you have in mind? Who did you think would would really focus in and benefit from your experience?
2: Well, I, I'll answer the second question first. I the book is really written for folks who uh, who have organizations or, or find themselves in a leadership position, uh, or they want to change the culture of the the situation they're in to become more reliable. They uh, and so so that's who it's written for but the interesting thing is is that it also can help an individual change the way they do things uh i think we all have our own personal culture that we create and if there's something in your personal culture that uh that you would like to change uh, the the tenets of this book will help you do that uh i have to give a lot of credit to the to the uh person who wrote uh Wrote in the beginning of my uh, book uh, for me, and his name is Miles Martel. In fact, he is—he is—was my mentor professionally, and still is a very, very dear friend. Uh, he uh, cool thing about Miles is he was the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, so uh, yeah. he 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 knew some very important people, <laughs> and uh, and uh, he he took me on uh, as a uh, a mentee, and he was my mentor. And he's actually the, the person that convinced me to write this book. Uh, you know, I had lots of thoughts on how you ran, how you could run businesses and how you could create leaders. And uh, one day during a uh, mentoring session, he said, uh, you need to write th- a book, and, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And that's mm. sort of where it started.
1: Wow. Accountability is an important part of, of uh, any lifestyle, isn't it?
2: It it absolutely is, especially uh leaders. Uh when I when in the book when I talk about accountability there I believe there are two types. There's uh personal accountability and corporate accountability and people who are corporately accountable say, Yeah, I agree with what you're saying and then they say someone needs to do something. <laughs> uh what leaders say is uh and who take personal accountability is, is I need to do something and then they go do it.
1: Yes, absolutely agree with that, Jeff. How long did it take to complete your book? One hundred and sixty-eight pages of uh, well, well thought, well thought <laughs> Well, out, uh, I have to give
2: uh, the folks at iUniverse a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I, I put everything in in a format that that I thought was a good book, and through lots of good coaching and lots of uh, lots of uh, just uh, understanding what I was trying to create, they they helped me tremendously, but. I would say the whole, uh, from from the inception of thinking about writing it to actually doing it, the process probably took me uh, somewhere around eighteen months to to twenty months to complete.
1: Well, that's not too bad. Had, were, were there consequences? I mean, any challenges that you hadn't anticipated that you had to overcome?
2: Yeah, the uh, the when I when I wrote the book and uh, and had my original chapter sequence, uh, when when they when the. Folks at our university did the content editing. They said, uh, "Yeah, we really, really like this, uh, and this is really, really good." But we would move chapter six to chapter three, and I can't remember exactly <laughs> what. But when you move chapter six to chapter three, chapter six no longer has four and five. The created so there mm. was there was some significant rewriting going on, but but the the rewrite was absolutely worth it and and it was uh it made a much better product
1: are you inspired to write a a sequel or a follow-up to this
2: well you know one of the interesting conversations i've had with the folks at i universe is they they really have said uh uh that uh you know you could create this whole thing into a uh to a self-help book and and i really think you could and i even would have a title for it instead of leader reliability i would combine i'm great for making up words i would call it your reliability <laughs> and uh... and maybe uh... when i uh... when i finally do retire i retired from uh... from the corporate corporation that i worked at and uh, started my own business and uh... and fortunate for me another uh... company actually acquired my business so now i'm Beautiful. doing a lot of work for them and uh and they actually uh use the content of this book in their uh with how they help their customers and that's just a great thing that's another reason I wrote it I just want to help people but uh you know when I finally do maybe uh hang it up for for good I I think I'm, You know, it, it might be fun to do it again.
1: Well, congratulations on completing this. Leader Reliability, Jeff Dudley, has been my guest from Michigan, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. Jeff, my listeners need to get a copy of this. If they're in any kind of leadership, how do they get one?
2: Uh, it's very, uh, very easy. They can go to uh, the iUniverse website. They can go to uh, Amazon.com. And uh, or they can go to Barnes and Noble and ask them to order it for them. So that's uh, that's the places they can get it.
1: Is there another place they can get in contact with you? Do you have a website?
2: Uh, I do. It is called uh, Leader Reliability, the same title as the uh, as the book dot com. So it's a it's an easy find
1: dot com or dot net. Dot .com. com. Excellent. Well, great visiting with you, Jeff. Uh, listeners, get a copy of this. If you have any questions about leadership or some uh, want some motivation, this is a book you'll need to read, Leader Reliability. Jeff Dudley has been my guest. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me today. Thank you. For Universe, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on Toginet.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying, to 14 ways to get a baby to eat, and so much more. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old. Boy, I need to worry about that myself. My last name is Barker, so that's kind of a, well, never mind. How to solve your retirement cash flow puzzle. Our guest author who joins me from Georgia, Dr. Roger Remick. Thank you, sir, for joining me today, sir. My pleasure. This is an important read for people like me. I am getting a little older, I hate to admit it, but I uh, do worry about retirement, do worry about uh, things like, lack of uh, good sustenance when I become older. In fact, I've had some relatives who were, there was a rumor that they were being mistreated and uh, maybe did even resort to eating dog food. I hate to admit that. They were not close relatives, but I'd heard that. Share where this book came from and a little of your background.
5: Yeah, the title of the book actually came from the history of Social Security. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, heard in the early 30s when we were in the midst of the Great Depression that a lot of seniors and a lot of others were at the point where they were so desperate that uh, they were eating dog and cat food hmm. in order to to get by. And, and that, at least anecdotally, and You never know about these things, but anecdotally, that was the origin of the Social Security system in this country. It is increasingly becoming a problem, Jay, because unfortunately what is happening is that people are living longer, and... The in the traditional American way of thinking, they view retirement as a sprint rather than as a long distance run. Right. And unfortunately, we hear all those statistics about the fastest growing generation being those over ninety. Wow. And now the statistics even show that if you have a couple that's sixty-five years old. There's about a fifty-fifty chance. What I was going to live to be ninety-seven.
1: Incredible! Wow! I'm
5: seeing some of these. I'm seeing some of these almost frightening things that say, uh, with medical advances, if you make it through the next five years there's an awfully good chance you 're going to live to be over a hundred i bl- there' are going to be a lot of people living to a hundred and ten hundred and
1: fifteen i have blamed I' have blamed that a lot on the uh, preservatives in food I, my wife is uh, f- afraid of preservatives i think they 're a good thing it, uh, if you want to live long
5: yeah it <laughs> medicine modern medicine's done some absolutely incredible things we 're all being given thought processes that allow us to live longer. And unfortunately, and I tell this story a lot, uh, I live in a, in a what would be considered a reasonably affluent community. And yet when I go to group dinners occasionally at our club, I, I hear 75- and 80-year-olds talking about how very hard a time they are they are having making ends meet.
1: There was a, a also a, a myth that Social Security would be the the way to survive and and do well in retirement, and that's just not the case any longer.
5: Well, Social Security it's the administration itself of Social Security says Social Security should, on average, do forty percent of the job. But with what's happened to uh, rates of return on certificates of deposits and on bonds and other shorter-term instruments, what's happening is that Social Security has to do more and more and more of the job. Ironically, they actually have improved uh, Social Security benefits dramatically, and that's one of the most important mistakes I identify in my book is all the people who take Social Security too early. Mm. Uh, but even for those who take it later, it it shouldn't have to do all the job. And unfortunately, the statistics are that most people arrive at retirement with under fifty thousand in other savings.
1: Having been self-employed most of my life, I can relate to that latter uh, discussion or latter illustration you've given that uh, financially it's difficult to save when you are, let's call it self-employed, and challenged uh, to uh, pay the bills every month. If you do arrive at Social Security retirement age, what is your recommendation for someone, and how do they get through the next few years, maybe to 97
5: well, a lot, number one is always get the most out of your Social Security. The But among the others, one of the ones that, that I so often point out to people is people take money out of their IRAs
3: mm-hmm.
5: way too young. And IRAs are I, – I liken IRAs to the golden goose in that – in that historic fable you know I, one of the things i learned very early when i was in school was about the golden goose and and the master who cut the golden goose open to get more than one golden egg per day <laughs> they wound up with nothing well draw money out of your ira too early is a kid to that the idea that that I think a lot of people are going to have to draw on, and I believe the common logic is just totally wrong. As a mathematician and a tax person, it relates to home ownership, though. Hmm. The concept of you got to have a paid-for house when you retire, right, uh, is probably wrong.
1: Really, I guess in so. this
5: day and age, with with the nature of interest rates etc and i am absolutely convinced because i've done a lot of mathematical analysis on it that all of the negative literature on reverse mortgages is as some people would say poppycock Hmm. it's wrong you know What they're doing, Jay, is they are comparing a reverse mortgage to a traditional mortgage. And a traditional mortgage is going to be less expensive than a reverse mortgage. Right. And reverse mortgages 10 years ago were very, very expensive, and I would never have recommended it. But if you could get a traditional mortgage at 4%, and a reverse mortgage would cost you 6%, Correct. That sounds like that's high. But it's but if you consider the alternatives it maybe it isn't. For example, if it allowed you not to take your Social Security at sixty two and take it at seventy because you were taking money out of a reverse mortgage, you would have seventy six percent more income from Social Security at seventy hmm. than at sixty two. And another one is that the tax rules these days are so unfavorable i have senior clients who between their social security and their other things meet pretty much the social security standard which is you need 60 for a couple to live and if you get 30 of it from social security the other 45 has to come from somewhere right if it comes from iras working anything that is fully taxable then you probably have seventy five come in but you have to pay ten or eleven out. True. So you only wind up with sixty five or a little bit less. Whereas if part of it is coming out of a reverse mortgage, it may be that you have seventy five coming in and you pay two or three thousand in taxes and now you pretty much have seventy two or seventy three thousand to live off of. Interesting. And if you consider it from that point of view that a reverse mortgage is a tool to allow you to either draw, re, delay drawing Social Security or delay drawing out of your IRAs or simply to pay less taxes, then I think reverse mortgages make a lot more sense than most people understand. And I what I, I think when people like myself present the mathematical analysis, to me as a mathematician, it's it's very simple. It's a good idea for a lot of people.
1: You would think that's they're not
5: gonna have any choice.
1: You you think that's probably the hottest item right now for people who are considering retirement then or have the ability well, to it do it. Well it should be mobile. the hottest item. It should be. Okay.
5: I don't know that it is, Jay, because the unfortunate fact is that the naysayers Talk louder than the advocates, and most of the advocates are salespeople, so they lack credibility.
1: Ah, that's true.
5: You need people like myself who are not selling a reverse mortgage, don't have anything to do with a reverse mortgage, other than saying this is an alternative you should consider to allow you to have enough cash flow to live in retirement. I think you get a very
1: different answer. You also also touch on Medicare and some strategies there. What is different about your approach to Medicare and supplements?
5: Well, there's nothing so much different about my approach to Medicare than the experts. The problem is what people actually do, Jay. People, less than 10% of the people buy a Medicare supplement. Right. People try to get by on the cheap for Medicare. And that is very painful over time. They wind up paying a lot of expenses. And those of us who do buy a Medicare supplement, in my case, when I hit 65, my total all-in medical costs were about three, dollars Medicare Part B, right. and for my Medicare supplements, and for my Medicare drugs, were about $300 a month. Mm. That's way more less than when you, especially if you were self-employed, paying $10 or 1100 a month. That's true. Uh, but it's way less than most people were paying, even in their corporate world, for their health insurance prior to retirement. But people don't think that way, Jay. What they do is they say, oh, now I'm retired. How can I get by for the least possible? And a lot of people, the, the the largest number of people just have Medicare A and B, which means they have all those deductibles. They dare not get sick because if they get sick, you know, it could be 10000 all all the way up to six years. Ouch! years, in terms of medical expenses a year, with my $300 and my Medicare supplements, and it's been several years now, I still can't get used to the idea when I go to the doctors, and they always route you by the exits, uh-huh. so you can pay. I can't get used to that I don't have to stop there. Phenomenal. Because I don't know it I don't know anything.
1: Don't know anything. And
5: the the people at the billing station always laugh at me. They say, by now you <laughs> still haven't figured out you don't have to pay anything.
1: <laughs> you have a good plan then, obviously.
5: Yeah, it's a good plan, but like I say, my total all in cost is roughly three
1: hundred dollars a month. Not too bad, especially compared to traditional insurance coverage, for sure. You have one chapter, Early Birds Don't Get the Worm. What is that topic related to?
5: Well, that's really related to drawing Social Security too early. Okay. It's to taking money out of your retirement accounts too early. Uh, it When you have money that's working hard for you, which Social Security is, and which your IRAs hopefully are because of the tax advantages, that should be the last money that you access. But it's hard for people because what should be the first money is the excess amount that they keep in money markets and in CDs. But it's hard for people to understand that By taking that money first, they don't pay any taxes on that money. They've already paid the taxes, and they weren't earning earning anything on that money. The double whammy with taking IRAs too early is you have to pay taxes, and you lose the earnings that were way better than your money market earnings.
1: True, true.
5: And Social Security, since between 66 and 70, it grows at 8% a year. That's a lot better earning rate than they have on their money markets. So they hoard their cash and use up their Social Security and their IRAs, and that's a very bad decision.
1: Would you describe your book as one that's pretty simple to read for even people who don't understand complex issues?
5: Yeah, the I had help from a very good editor, who, quite frankly, made my book a lot more readable. <laughs> my my book was probably a little bit like mathematician consultant right. prior to David's help, but David did a terrific job of helping me.
1: You've done a great job explaining it in 12 chapters, 12 uh, short, distinct, and uh, pointed chapters, 196 pages. The title of the book, again, is Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old, How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. Uh, My guest joining me from uh, from, uh, Georgia has been uh, author Roger Remick. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where do my listeners get a copy of your book, sir? Uh,
5: Best place is probably Amazon.com.
1: They also do a search under your name. Roger and Remick is spelled R O E M M I C H. And uh, Dr. Remick, thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. This is an important book for anyone who's thinking they might want to retire someday, or if they already are in retirement, they can pick up some great tips that will help them through the uh, retirement years, maybe to age 170. Who knows? <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. Thank, thank you. you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com.
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. The book is interesting by title, An Immigrant's Journey to the Cosmos. It's a memoir by my guest, Dr. N.Y. Misconi, who joins me from the area of Michigan in the United States today. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. You have a very interesting story to tell. You grew up in what country, and how did you become interested in the cosmos?
3: Well, uh, I was born in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, from, from uh, uh, a family. Uh, my father had some roots back from Verona, Italy, and that's why the name is Koni. And my mother is uh, a Syriac, which are the original inhabitants of Mesopotamia. So we belong to the Christian minority in Iraq. And uh, the reason I, uh, uh, I uh, did this book is because I was, myself, after I retired, where I was a professor at the University of Central Florida. I retired in 2011, and then I started thinking, hey, wait a minute, I have a journey that I did uh... that is very unique so why not write a book about it it may inspire other people that read the book to do similar things that i did and uh... basically i come from a very humble beginnings in baghdad uh... we were living in the center of baghdad in in a house where the houses were all adjacent to each other there's no space between each house Mm -hmm. The street, the street that I lived in was about 30 feet wide. A car cannot go in that street. So imagine from that humble beginning, then I finish high school and then I get a scholarship to go to Istanbul, Turkey, for the sole reason, because I wanted to study astronomy. I fell in love in astronomy because I read a book uh, an American book from the USIS, which is United States Information Service. At the time, it was in Baghdad. And usually, they are all over the place, in Cairo, Istanbul, and every city. Uh, but now they are all closed, of course. Uh, I borrowed a book about the stars, and I got fascinated by astronomy. And so I took a scholarship, went to Istanbul, learned Turkish, and got my bachelor's degree in... Uh, in astronomy. And then I came back to Baghdad and I started teaching in the College of Science of the University of Baghdad. And then I became a TV personality because uh, they asked me to come to the TV uh, station and answer questions and talk about astronomy. And I made uh, um, at least fifty appearances uh, in, in the late 1960s uh, and uh, how, how did and these,
1: how, how did ro- yeah. how did rocketry get get introduced? I know that you read the book of uh, the life of Doctor von Braun and his career. That yeah. impressed you and and uh, guided you towards uh, rocketry and and uh, inter- internet. Yeah, you know,
3: fun. You should bring that. that. I wanted to say that uh, do, after I finished high school, I had a dilemma between whether. To go with von Braun and rocket uh, rocket, uh, science Mm -hmm. or to be an astronomer. So I had this dilemma in between. And then I I went into freshman in in Istanbul, and they had both. They had chemical engineering, which is part of rocketry. And they had astronomy. So I, I went into... Uh, chemical engineering for a year and then I realized it's not really chemical engineering. They were just beginning to make it into it was mostly chemistry. So then I visited the astronomy department and I fell in love with astronomy Mm. big time. And then uh, I graduated and like I said, I went back to Baghdad and appeared on television. In Baghdad there was only one TV channel, the government channel. So everybody who watched uh, so I became uh, a known person uh, in Baghdad uh, for uh, answering viewers' questions on astronomy, the universe, everything.
1: And was that in the 1960s that this this occurred? Yeah, between
3: 1966 to 1969, end of 1969. 1969. I was arrested. yeah. And then in 1970, I realized my great dream of coming to the United States. I was dreaming of coming to the United States since I was uh I don't know 6 or 7 years old. Uh, uh, Hollywood movies just fascinated me and uh, uh, and the freedom in America um uh, made me think I got to go to the United States and fulfill my dreams.
1: And you ended, And my dreams you, your your, yes. your did your dreams include uh, Nassau, which you you eventually were able to work with? Or was that something that just developed later?
3: Yes. No, no, no. Because when I was on television in Baghdad, the United States uh, had Apollo 11 landed on the moon in 1969. Correct. And and I was there, and I stayed all night without sleep, listening to Voice of America, uh, step by step. And then I went on television and explained the whole moon uh, trip by Apollo 11, and I was telling my mother all the time, my biggest dream is that one day I'll be in Cape Canaveral at Kennedy Space Center doing something important. And lo and behold, I taught so many lectures and I had an office at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida.
1: Mm. And you were uh, able to come
3: As part of uh, the University of Central Florida. Incredible. Because they... they they
1: had other campuses, you know. Yes, you, your book, the way you have uh, outlined it, you have several chapters. Of course, it's uh, two hundred ninety-eight, yes. uh, two hundred ninety-eight pages of of memoir. But the 298. Way, Yes, the way the way you have ah. uh, broken it down, you've broken it down into sub chapters. I would uh, describe it as yes. where you have uh, maybe an article or a paragraph or two about uh, a certain incident in your life that propelled your your. Uh, Your career. One thing I I was curious about did you keep track of those incidences as they were occurring, or did you look back and remember them?
3: Uh, Which one, the political incident? Well,
1: you have the political, you have uh, silicate versus carbon particles, you have achieving laser particle limitation for the second time. Those kinds of of, uh, stories that you have recounted uh, must have had uh, a great deal of reflection and a a brilliant mind to remember them, or you kept notes at the the time that they happened.
3: Well, I kept notes, actually, uh, they are all documented in my proposals. I have written about close to 50 proposals to many funding agencies like NSF, National Science Foundation, NASA, of course, and even local funding agencies in Florida. And, uh, of course, uh, all this is written in the book in a way where the layman can understand. Uh, You don't have to be an astrophysicist to understand my book the science section of the book. Yes. Because it talks about interplanetary dust. And interplanetary dust is a very important topic, and people don't realize that, that all of us have interplanetary dust in our bodies. So, uh, because, uh, and the whole solar system was formed from interplanetary dust, along with gases like hydrogen and so on.
1: Well, I've met some people, uh, I have met some people that uh, seem to have some type of interplanetary gases in them, I think. Um, yes, Yes. Uh, yes. This- but, like
3: Jupiter is almost a, a gas ball.
1: Really? you, see, you have-
3: But but the, but the planets that are close to the Sun are all rocky and they have surfaces and so on and they are made of coagulating interplanetary
1: dust Wonder- wonderfully stated you you have uh, also outlined in your early years your near-death experience which is how you uh, begin the book talking about a uh, an occurrence that happened as a child this was in the 40s and uh, you experienced a, uh, a, a, a an infection of some type a dental infection share with my listeners yeah. how that happened and how that uh, that uh, you became cured of that.
3: Well, I, I was i was a kid. Uh, I think I was nine, ten years old. I was playing with my brothers and other friends and all that. And all of a sudden, I see a big ball in my cheek. And then I went to my mother, and they said, Oh, my God, what is this? Mm. And then they took me into a carriage, because in Baghdad at that time, there were some cabs and some carriages. So we took a carriage to the dentist, and... Uh, the dentist uh, unfortunately closed at night. So, what are we going to do? And then on our way back, my father saw a pharmacist closing his door and he knew him. He said, Don't, don't close. I have a problem. He came and looked at my cheek. He saw this abscess big time. Uh, and then he said, Your son is very lucky. And my father said, Why? He said, We just got something called penicillin three, four days ago for the first time in Iraq. And you get a nurse, and she should inject him every four hours, and he will be fine in the morning, believe me. So he gave us the penicillin, we got a a lady that's a nurse, and she kept injecting me with uh, with the clock ringing every four hours, waking Mm. up, and put an injection in my bottom. (laughs) And at that time, penicillin was very hard, so I had, black and blue marks and i couldn't sit for about maybe two weeks i couldn't sit i have to lie down like this because the pain is so much uh i understand now they add they add different chemicals to the penicillin so it won't do that but
1: that actually saved your life because penicillin was not a common common product there it was not available normally
3: yes So that's almost no, a miraculous, ridiculous.
1: miraculous yeah. uh, occurrence in your life. You have uh, recounted many, Actually, many the interesting. Dentist,
3: the dentist told my father, "If you didn't see that guy with the penicillin, so your son would be dead in the morning."
1: Incredible. You also yeah. uh, recount being uh, involved in the Star Wars project back in the eighties. Yes, share a little of that yes. that history.
3: Yes. Well, um, you know when you do research, uh, I recommend that. For anybody who does serious research in astronomy, astrophysics, chemistry, what have you, you have to look for spin offs of your research that you could do. So I heard about Star Wars by President Reagan, and they wanted to uh, defend American satellites against laser weapons. See, laser weapons were up and coming, and they told uh, President Reagan that. Uh, We have to protect our satellites from the Russians, you know, shooting a laser beam and melting the satellite or breaking it apart. Mm. And we had satellites that will follow the military and follow what's going on in the world and all that. So once I heard that, I said, okay, I have developed, with my experiment with lasers, a technique where I can uh, protect against, a concentrated laser beam by using very small particles, layers of very small particles that can reflect the laser back and not let it destroy the satellite. So I wrote a proposal and they gave me money. So I <laughs> built a whole laser uh, laboratory that will do that. Amazing. And uh, then the Air Force Office of Scientific Research funded me for three years, I think for about $650,000. And I had other people, you know, working with me, but I was the director of the whole thing. And uh, we started doing experiments with silicate particles. And then when we went for a conference in Albuquerque, Mexico, by the Air Force, I realized that there are scientists, me, working on silicate particles. And there are other scientists working on carbon particles, because carbon is, can withstand temperatures up to 4,000 degrees centigrade. So we were two, two ideas. Do we protect satellites by putting particles of silicate that will reflect the laser weapon? Or do we put carbon particles that will not melt and can absorb all that heat from the laser beam. Now, the U.S. had also laser beams, They're very, very big laser beams uh, for weapons, and those laser beams are are not the regular laser beams that you use in a the laboratory. These are real weapons, and they can they can uh, drill holes in steel and and walls and everything like that. So that was my connection to Star Wars, and then I submitted a complete report, and uh, then uh, the the whole program got classified. Ah. And then I don't know what happened from then on.
1: Well, listeners, if you want to learn a little about uh, about the journey of an immigrant, an immigrant's journey to, into the cosmos, a memoir by Dr. N.Y. Moscone, uh, this is a book for you. You will find it fascinating. The The uh, recounted history is not long in its uh, content. It's uh, 298 pages, but it's broken down into short incidences of uh, things like the early years, the end of the royal family in Baghdad, life in Istanbul, uh, going back to Baghdad, teaching astronomy in Baghdad, and each of those is broken down into smaller subchapters. So you will enjoy the read and uh, also find it fascinating that uh, someone with your background has achieved uh, such wonderful and interesting things in life. Dr. Moscone, where can we get copies of your book?
3: Uh, Well, uh, it is now... uh Uh, advertised on Amazon and eBay and Barnes & Noble and also uh, there are you can get them from iUniverse the publisher uh, where you can directly uh, write to them Uh, you can go on any on the Internet on any browser and and just put iUniverse and you get their address and then you can uh, send them and say I want a copy, hard copy or soft cover or ebook. Ebook is out too, and uh, like I said, Amazon, eBay, and Barnes and Nobles. Um, so, uh, and and they they tell you where to order the book.
1: Where to order the book? And I- Excellent. And again, the title of the yes. book is An Immigrant's Journey into the Cosmos, a memoir by Dr. N.Y. Moscone. Thank you, doctor, for joining me today and sharing your That's story. Great. Thank you for sharing yes. your story, sir.
3: Thank you. George, talking to you, Jay.
0: A
1: pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker